1: It is 1700 hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are live from Johannesburg in South Africa and you can find us on 9625kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I am Spumale Lezondi and I'm with Onel and with Sani Matebula and Neto Chemane. Your top stories. The United Nations calls for openness between the United States and Cuba Following the death of a long-time leader, South African president survives another attempt to eject him out of office. In economics, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission investigates a three billion U.S. dollars impairment charge booked by minor Rio Tinto. And in sports, the world mourns the death of a Brazilian football team in a plane crash. Anelinde is here with your news.
2: Thank you, Spu. Brazil President Michel Temer has decreed three days of national mourning for the victims of an air crash in Colombia that killed most of the players of a soccer team. The Bay 146 charter aircraft crashed into the Colombian jungle on approach to Medellin Airport, killing 76 people on board, including 21 journalists. A senior aide to Burundi's president, Nkurunziza has been injured in an attack that also killed one of his bodyguards. Monday night's assassination attempt to Willie Nyamitu, a senior communications officer to phone Goronziza, occurred in the Kajaga suburb of the capital, Bujumbura. The International Criminal Court says at least 450 people have been killed in the Central African nation since Gronziza's announcement early last year that he planned to seek a third term triggered a surge in violence. South Africa's ruling ANC National Executive Committee has extended their condolences to the people of Cuba following the death of the former revolutionary leader Fidel Castro. World leaders have descended on the capital Havana for a mass rally commemorating Castro, the rebel who seized power in a 1959 revolution and ruled the island for half a century. He died on Friday at the age of 90. ANC Secretary General Guedemondashi was speaking during the ANC NEC media briefing in Johannesburg
3: The National Executive Committee on behalf of the ANC sends sincere condolences to the Cuban people on the passing of the former president leader of the Cuban revolution the commandant Fidel Castro Ruz We express our immense gratitude for their selflessness and sacrifices during our liberation struggle as well as they are continuing support in the reconstruction and development of our country. After holding a moment of silence for Commandant Fidel Castro, the Ennis adopted a special resolution in his honour.
2: Uganda has rejected charges by rights group Amnesty International that security forces carried out extrajudicial killings during clashes with the royal guards of a tribal king at the weekend. Officials say at least 46 guards and 16 police died when security forces stormed the palace of Charles Wesley Mumbere, the king of the Rwenzuru region near Uganda's border with Congo. International Rights Watch, Drug Human Rights Watch also said on Monday that the government needed to investigate the conduct of security forces during the clashes. And finally, the Africa Regional Conference on Abortion is underway in Ethiopia to find ways to stop the practice of unsafe abortion in sub-Sahara Africa. More than 250 researchers, policymakers, advocates, health care providers, youth journalists, and donors are attending the conference. The Good Matcher Institute, a research and policy organization committed to advancing sexual and reproductive health and rights in the United States and globally, says. And an estimated 56 million abortions occur each year worldwide. In Africa alone, women have more than 8 million abortions each year, many of which are deemed to be unsafe. Channel Africa News. I am Onyilencei.
1: It is 1705 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you very much, Onele, for that update. The United Nations would like to see the era of detente and openness between the United States and Cuba continue. That's the word from the spokesperson of the Secretary General after concerns in some quarters that the new era of engagement under the administration of President Barack Obama will be undone by the incoming Republican administration of Donald Trump. Senior Trump officials have in recent days indicated that the president-elect might roll back some of the Obama achievements if Cuba did not make a greater concern sessions, particularly in the area of human rights and press freedom. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. As Cubans
4: mourn the late Comandante,
1: a firm message from Trump officials
4: that efforts to normalize relations between the two countries are in real jeopardy. Listen to senior advisor Kellyanne Conway speaking on nbc's meet the press this sunday
5: on the issue of diplomatic relations being reopened with cuba what president-elect trump says is that he'd be open to that himself but that we got nothing in return we're allowing commercial aircraft there we pretend that we're actually doing business with the cuban people now when really we're doing business with the cuban government and the cuban military he's been very clear that the major priority now is to make sure cubans on cuba have the same freedoms that cubans here in america have which is political religious and economic freedom make sure those political prisoners are finally released into freedom and make sure the american fugitives face the law
4: but at the united nations a month after the general assembly voted 191 to zero for the u.s embargo on cuba to be lifted including an abstention from the united states for the first time in history there is still concern that this era of rapprochement will fade after all vast majority of UN member states have been calling for the embargo to be lifted for a quarter of a century. Stefan Duzeric for the Secretary General.
6: The agreements that we've seen very recently between the US and Cuba on the rapprochement, on the increased trade uh, and the openness of the relationship was welcomed by the UN. We continue to welcome it. I think it's, it is a critical relationship in the Western Hemisphere. The rapprochement was clearly a positive move in the sense of clearing up what had been, to say the least, a very complicated relationship between U.S. and Cuba.
1: A
4: tweet posted by President-elect Trump earlier Monday said that without a better deal for the Cuban people, he would terminate efforts put in place by President Obama. Dujeric again.
6: Obviously, the Secretary General would hope that rapprochement, would continue, as he would between any nations. We've seen it in the past, whether it's between Iran and the United States, between the U.S. and Cuba, whether it's between Equatorial Guinea and Gabon, where the Secretary-General oversaw the the signing of an important joint declaration. Dialogue and openness is always the better option as far as the United Nations is concerned.
4: Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon's office also indicating he will not be travelling to Cuba for planned memorials and the state funeral on December 4th, but that the UN would be represented by a resident coordinator or another official. I'm Sherman Brycebees in New York.
1: The United Nations representative to South Sudan, Ellen Mugarete-Lodge, who has just ended her three-day term, is pleading with the international community not to abandon the country despite numerous political and military problems that it has undergone over the past five years. However, the United Nations representative regrets that the authorities in the capital, Juba, failed to fulfill numerous promises. It gave to the people of south sudan she also decried the collapse of the peace agreement that was signed earlier this year by president salvakir and his principal political and military opponent Riak machar james shimanyula
7: at the end of this week united nations representative in south sudan elaine And her three-year term, which has been characterized by tough challenges, taking into consideration that the country has been plunged into anarchy, not forgetting that it fought for independence for more than 20 years. The departure of the United Nations representative from South Sudan leaves thousands of people who have taken refuge at its camps in the safe hands of her colleagues, in the security section pending the arrival of a new united nations representative yet to be named by the u.n while the outgoing u.n representative to south sudan elaine Loy, who was in the country the united nations mission there ensured that to a large extent it helped to avert attacks on the people accommodated there despite two major attacks by marauding armed gangs taking the UN security personnel there unawares. The recent attacks in South Sudan and the extensive fighting in July this year, especially in and around the capital, Juba, has left the international community wondering whether or not permanent peace will ever prevail in Africa's newest nation. Outgoing United Nations Representative Elaine Margaretha Loy A citizen of Denmark has a strong and timely message to the international community.
8: Do not give up on South Sudan, because the people of South Sudan deserve the focus of the international community. You might be be tired of the politicians of this country who have inflicted this conflict on the people of South Sudan.
7: Alluding to the elusive peace agreement that was signed earlier this year by President Salva Kiir and his main political and military opponent Riek Machar, outgoing United Nations representative in South Sudan, Elaine Magarethe Loy, made this task assertion: "The peace
8: agreement has to be implemented. We cannot give up on South
7: Sudan." She saluted the ordinary people of South Sudan for bearing the brunt. Of on and off arm the conflicts that have erupted in South Sudan.
8: Remind yourself on a daily basis that all the suffering you went through in the independence war was to get one independent South Sudan. One independent South Sudan. And that you are South Sudanese regardless of your ethnic affiliation. I'm extremely impressed by. The resilience of the South Sudanese people, Uh, I'm
7: extremely depressed that their hopes and aspiration at their time of independence has not yet been fulfilled. The outgoing United Nations representative Elaine-Margaretha Loy acknowledged that during her stay in the country, the UN security team had a tough time when moving in and around various places. We
8: have had difficulties in moving around from the government side and
7: the IO side. The IO that the outgoing United Nations representative to South Sudan, Elene Margareth Loy, is referring to is the acronym for in opposition. That is the opposition side led by the now rebel leader, Riek Machar. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Namibia International Beach and Cultural Festival Langstrand Beach, Walvis Bay, Namibia 23rd, 24th, 25th of December Music Festival with international and local artists 4 night accommodation packages and activities Available at Compute Ticket Travel Main event tickets available at Compute Ticket 150 Namibian Dollars, 150 Rands and 130 Pula Tickets are available at ShopRite and Checkers Get yours today VIP is 500 Namibian Dollars, 500 Rands Or 380 Pula Hashtag experts in Namibia Hashtag Harambe Cultures of Southern Africa route Is powered by Channel Africa
9: www.culturalfestival.net Download the app today 1713
1: Central African Time Right here on Channel Africa The voice of the African Renaissance That is 1713 Central African Time Right, in the program we're listening to is Africa Digest. My name is Poma Lillizondi. Remember to find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. And if you want to send us emails, it's info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. South African President Jacob Zuma has survived an attempt to remove him from office after a three-day-long meeting of his party's National Executive Committee. The ANC announced the outcome of the meeting at a media briefing after Zuma departed to Habana for the funeral of former Cuban President Fidel Castro. ANC Secretary General Mandache says the consensus reached by the party's NEC is that it does not support calls for President Jacob Zuma to step down.
3: During the course of these discussions, a call was made for the ANC president, Comrade Jacob Zuma, to consider stepping down as the president of the Republic of South Africa. The ANC decided, though that issue was neither in the report or the political overview of the president, to debate, to allow the debate without suppression. So that was debated openly freely anybody was free to make any any statement after extensive deliberation the NEC came to the conclusion that the NDR remains on course however the revolution is facing serious threats being racism ethnic nationalism and monopoly capital ethnic pluralism is beginning to emerge and becoming emboldened, expressed in factions and certain unrest in society. We must defeat narrow ethnic and nationalism and all residual contradictions which form the basis of apartheid colonialism. On the call for the President to consider stepping down as the President of the Republic, the NEC took time to elaborate on what we have previously identified as negative narrative directed towards the president. That's how we, we captured it after the, the local government elections. So we allowed ourselves to discuss and said, no, let's allow this debate because in our diagnosis there was this item and this was time to actually unpack that item.
1: There was ANC Secretary General Gwede Mandasha speaking at a briefing following the ANC's three-day ANC meeting.
0: It's been a long road for the first applicant, known only as AB. She's been trying to... Con- Your time is
1: 1716 Central African Time. Apologies about that. Now, would-be parents who were pinning their hopes in South African Constitutional Court's judgment on a portion of the Children's Act have been disappointed. The court says the act is not unconstitutional. It in its demands, rather, that one parent must donate reproductive organs in a surrogacy. The case was brought to the courts by the Social Development Department, who are appealing a high court judgment that the portion of the act was unconstitutional. Angela Buloana reports.
0: It's been a long road for the first applicant known only as AB. She's been trying to conceive since 2001 using in vitro fertilization. She underwent 18 cycles to no avail, but turning to surrogacy proved another steep hill. Section 294 of the Children's Act requires that at least one of the commissioning parents must use their garments. AB is single and incapable of donating a garment. The court refused to endorse the high court's decision that this section of law was unconstitutional, as Acting Chief Justice Blessing Gabinde explains. It is open to commissioning parents or parent who are conception and pregnancy infertile and who wish to have children to bring themselves within the ambit of the law by entering into a partnership relationship with someone whose garment may be used for the conception of the child as uh, contemplated in the surrogate motherhood agreement. The majority, therefore, concludes that the minister's appeal must be upheld the Department of Social Development has welcomed the judgment saying it's meant to protect the rights of the child. The department was however slammed with an order to pay costs, spokesperson Lumka Olifant.
8: protects the rights of children to have a genetic link to their to, to, to biological parents. And also very important that it, it means that our children's acts uh, uh, will not have to be amended. So the department uh, welcomes what happens today and it is victory for children uh, to have age and linked with uh with with, with their parents.
0: A.B. will now have to consider the option of adopting as this is the only thing left for her to explore. The surrogacy advisory group who were the second applicant in the case were disappointed by the judgment saying many other parents are in the same position and the process of adoption is not particularly friendly. Robin Friedman is the chief advisor for the group.
8: Adoption will be the only option for these class of infertile persons to pursue which is very unfortunate for a lot of couples because adoption is a very difficult process. There is a long waiting list um, of people waiting, especially for people wanting to adopt white Chinese or Indian babies, babies of a certain cultural group. It's most unfortunate.
0: The Centre for Child Law was friends of the court. The organisation was lobbying for the court to not declare this law unconstitutional, saying that genetic origin was linked to the child's self-identity and self-respect. The organization, just like the department, felt that it was of utmost importance for a child to know their genetic origin, saying this was supported by international law.
1: And the report is by Angela Boulouan. Now, South Africa's ruling party, the African National Congress, has lashed out at credit rating agencies, calling their references to political risk in recent reviews of the country as mischievous and unscientific. On Friday, Fitch kept the credit score one notch above junk, but changed its outlook to negative from stable, warning that political risks could hurt growth. The threat of South Africa being downgraded still looms large Ratings agency Standard & Poor's will release its review on the country's rating on Friday. The agency currently has South Africa one notch above junk or sub-investment level. Moody's has opted not to downgrade the country. It has, however, indicated that it's still concerned about the political and policy uncertainty. Speculation was rife for that if N C following its national executive meeting, recalled President Jacob Zuma as country's president. Then the ratings agencies could read this as government's seriousness to address the current political problems affecting growth in the country. To talk to us more on this, we're joined on the line by Chief Economist at Econometrics, Dr. Azar Jamin. Hello and welcome to Eternal Africa.
9: Good afternoon to you and to your
1: listeners. How do you read the statement by the African National Congress, the lashing out at ratings agencies?
9: Um, It's all very well for them to lash out at ratings agencies. The problem is the ratings agencies do have a material impact on financial markets, which in turn can have an impact on uh, decisions on economic decisions made by leading institutions in South Africa, such as the Reserve Bank. In particular, the potential uh, for, for, such, for the Reserve Bank to have to raise interest rates in the wake of a credit rating downgrade, which forces down the value of the country's currency.
1: Um, They say it's unscientific to the ANC, that is, to look at the political situation in the country before doing ratings. Uh, How true is this, that it's unscientific?
9: I think it is very uh, sensitive to this. I think the ratings agencies themselves, as Fitch did, made it quite clear that political infighting was a factor that they were looking at because they were concerned that the infighting that we are likely to see in the run-up to the uh, election of a new president of the ANC in a year's time uh, will deflect attention by government officials and politicians away from addressing key structural issues that are needed to improve South Africa's long-term growth and reduce the uh, chances of unemployment uh, continuing to rise which uh, uh, also cited infighting as potentially uh, jeopardizing decent governance and management of state-owned enterprises, which in turn would cause uh, these SOEs to rely on government to bail them out in the final resort, uh, which uh, in turn could result in the level of government debt rising still further, impairing the country's credit rating. Mm. So undoubtedly uh, political factors do have a role to play on credit ratings.
1: Mm, um, maybe we should actually look at how they do their ratings and how they eventually reach their conclusion. You did mention one, which is to look at um, a political infighting because that might affect, let's say, state-owned enterprises, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But cetera
9: well, how- no, I've emphasised. I've emphasised the two more important issues. It's not the political infighting; it's the effect that that has on two key yes. issues that yes. they raise, namely. The need to improve longer-term economic growth because without that government revenue cannot grow sufficiently to bring down the government the the budget deficit and in so doing cap the growth in the uh, public debt and secondly uh, uh, political infighting can also affect SOEs negatively which in turn can also force government debt upwards. So the reason for political... They don't uh, pick on political infighting alone on its own as a reason for downgrading credit rating. They are basically looking at the impact which political infighting can have on the two... Uh, more direct effects on whether on uh, public debt levels, which is what they are watching.
1: Mm. Uh, South Africa has been tense on these for pretty much the whole year this year, um, and uh, economists have also been worried about the um, economic situation in, in South Africa. Why is this?
9: Uh, clearly, there has been a massive decline in the level of business confidence in the last few years. And many attribute this to the leadership of the government and in part that leadership has been impaired by the kind of issues surrounding the president uh, and his failure to uh, uh, accede to certain constitutional requirements, his uh, um, accusations leveled against him of corruption and uh, state capture. Uh, That has all contributed towards a decline in business confidence that in turn has led to a fairly substantial decline in the level of capital investment by the private sector, which in turn has contributed towards lower growth and lower tax revenue. So it becomes a bit of a vicious circle. Uh,
1: There is one more ratings agency that's expected to release its outlook on Friday. What are we to expect there?
9: I think in light of the NEC's decision, uh, there is a danger that uh, Standard Poor's might see this as uh, escalating the possibilities of further political infighting in the year ahead. Um, Already the question arises as to whether those cabinet ministers who stood up against the president and called on him to resign will be able to remain. Uh, ministers going forward, and if they don't, given that they are amongst the what are perceived to be the most capable uh, of the ministers in the cabinet, uh, that won't create a very uh, an environment very conducive towards uh, a decent uh, government and effective service delivery. Mm, um, one would say and under those circumstances uh, um, I think there is a chance that today's outcome might have increased the possibility that S&P global ratings will downgrade us to junk status on Friday.
1: Mm, um, And one would say that South Africa does have a good finance minister and it's that person um, that maybe ratings agencies should be looking at as he pretty much is in charge of the economy of the country, no?
9: You're absolutely correct. I think they will be looking at uh, the Minister of Finance but they will be asking questions as to whether uh, the Minister of Finance's job will really be safe in a cabinet reshuffle, should we see such a reshuffle uh, uh, in light of today's events. Uh,
1: And junk status, that means what exactly?
9: It means that many pension funds and investors around the world uh, who may have wanted to invest and buy South African government bonds will be less willing to do so. For a country like ours where we import a lot more than we export, we are dependent on foreign exchange inflows from such decisions by investors to buy South African government bonds so that if we are reduced to junk status, that jeopardizes our ability to attract those monies. In turn, that forces interest rates upwards, especially long-term interest rates at, at which the government borrows. And so if the government is then compelled to... Uh, increase the amount it pays in interest on its debt, there will be less available to spend on more vital areas of social spending such as education, health care, uh, policing, etc.
1: Mm. And for the ordinary consumer who is buying toothpaste in the shops, um, will it mean anything for them?
9: Uh, it can mean something for them if it brings about, if the cessation of capital inflows brought about by junk status results in a sharp depreciation in the RAND, that in turn raises inflationary pressures. Firstly, that erodes the consumer's ability to buy on everything else. It will incre- force an increase in the petrol price eventually and that sort of thing. Uh, but also it uh, means that um Interest rates might have to rise, ultimately uh, worsening the situation for the average consumer. So that's the manner in which uh, the, the di- there can be a direct effect from a move to junk status.
1: Now, Dr. Azar I mean, you, you're painting a picture of Tum and Kloom for 2017.
9: No, I'm not uh, uh, aware uh, what i have not told you is that some cyclical factors in the economy are starting to turn take a turn for the better including an end to drought conditions the fact that inflation thus far has been Uh, Lower than expected interest rates have not risen to the extent that one had feared and uh, the rand is still very cheap and that makes it very competitive to export and we're seeing a huge flood of uh, foreign visitors to the country as tourists at the moment. So there are mitigating factors but what, one, what is really needed is more than just a cyclical upturn in the economy. We need structural changes that will uh, improve longer-term economic growth. And uh, unless we have proper management of the economy, we won't, and uh, attention to the detail of the structural impediments, we won't get the move to a better growth rate that we are seeking.
1: Mm. and And lastly, there are people who say we pay too much attention to ratings agencies um and their and, and their ratings um, do you agree with those people
9: well I've given you the reasons as to why uh, the what the ratings agencies say can have an impact directly on the consumer so uh, you know one can shout and scream as much as one like, likes about the inequity of a global situation in which ratings agencies at uh, an enormous amount of power. The fact remains is that so long as South Africa uh, likes to see itself as part of the global environment, it is uh, vulnerable to the decisions made by these ratings agencies. The alternative is to isolate oneself completely uh, in the way that Cuba did for so many years, but uh, many will argue that that led to a, lot of, uh, uh, to a, a sharp decline in uh, economic uh, prosperity for many people. Uh, Although it may have led to a more equal society, uh, people were unable to uh, consume the material things that many people here really aspire to.
1: All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Hazar Thank you. Dr. Zacheminde is a Chief Economist at Econometrics. And we now have to take news headlines with Onel and
2: Brazil's President Michel Temer has decreed three days of national mourning for the victims of an air crash in Colombia. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma survives yet another attempt to remove him from office. And Uganda rejects charges by rights group Amnesty International that security forces carried out extrajudicial killings during clashes with the royal guards of a tribal king at the weekend. Channel Africa News, I'm on Insi.
1: Thank you very much, Annelle. As countries prepare to mark World AIDS Day this coming Thursday, the World Health Organization, or WHO, has released a new set of guidelines on HIV self-testing in a bid to improve access to and the uptake of HIV diagnosis. According to a new World Health Organization progress report, lack of an HIV diagnosis remains a major obstacle to implementing the UN Health body's recommendation that everyone with HIV should be offered antiretroviral therapy. To speak to us more about this, we're joined on the line by Gregory Hartel, who is the World Health Organization spokesperson. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Gregory.
10: Thank you very much. Hello.
1: Now, Gregory, why do you think there's a need to push for HIV self-testing? Well,
10: we there's 14 million, an estimated 14 million people who are HIV positive who don't know their status. And if people don't know their status, then they can't get themselves treated, so they run a higher risk of of serious illness and death. And also they run a much higher risk of infecting their their sexual partners or their children.
1: Uh, uh, But maybe they don't know because they don't want to know, so why do you think this will help?
10: Well, oftentimes there are many groups, and we recognize this, that... um, Apart from not wanting to know, there are also people who don't want to do it because of, um, let's say, uh, stigma attached and or not wanting to have to go to a public center of some sort in order to do an initial test. So what we have found in um, pilot projects which we are undertaking in Malawi, uh, Zimbabwe, and Tanzania is that... Uh, the rates of testing and of knowledge of one's HIV status increase dramatically when we provide uh, people with self-tests that they can do in the privacy of their own homes.
1: All right, so how do you suggest that this um, should be done? Do You're you obviously saying it should be done in their own homes.
10: Yeah, so what happens is that, first of all, let's say, um, they, there are these self-tests, which are basically the same tests that are used in clinics. And you can do this in your own home, and you get the results within 20 minutes. And if your your test turns out negative, then um, you, of course, don't need to take it further. But if the test turns out that positive, we say that you should go to a clinic for a follow-up test to confirm that the, the test is indeed positive. And once you go to a clinic, you also... Immediately have access to counselling and treatment.
1: And do you think that um, these countries that we're talking about—some of them, some of the poorest countries in the world—would have the facilities to provide necessary counselling?
10: Well, certainly, a lot of times this does already exist. It doesn't exist enough. We need to do more. Um, and what we—the reason what we are emphasising this today or on the occasion of World AIDS Day on the 1st of December is because we would like um, policymakers around the world to seriously consider um, pushing and promoting and supporting self-testing as a means of um, getting, let's say, more people into the system and support it. Gregory, how
1: affordable are these tests?
10: Well, at the moment, um, they cost uh, the, the, the the tests that we've been using in the the, the projects in Malawi, Tanzania, and Zimbabwe cost uh, three U.S. dollars a piece. Um, we are, of course, uh, would need to find means of making this sustainable for uh, resource poor countries, and also um, negotiate somehow to get these prices down lower.
1: Uh, you earlier mentioned that uh, um, people would still need to go for um, HIV counseling one if they find that they're HIV positive. And in the past, we've heard that maybe people need to get pre-counseling before they are given their results. Does that does this not run the risk of that not happening?
10: Well, so it could. So there's many different ways. So normally, if you um, distribute these. Uh, self-tests through let's say how would you say it uh, regulated means so regulated means being either at pharmacies or at um, health centers then yes you would have pre-counseling before the person walks away with the test
1: uh, all right and lastly um, does the world health organization supports the countries that wish to carry out these tests Well, we believe this
10: is a very good idea, and we would like to see uh, more countries incorporate this um, self-testing tools into the range of measures which uh, countries are using to combat AIDS AIDS and HIV.
1: Thank you, Guillermo, for joining us.
10: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Gregory Hartle there is the spokesperson for the World Health Organization. Now, Southern African countries, including researchers from institutions of higher learning working on water research for sustainable use, are meeting at the Birchwood Hotel, and that's east of Johannesburg. The meeting is aimed at engaging in a dialogue on shared groundwater resources. Channel Africa journalist Wandi Kalipa attended the original meeting on tools for sustainable management of transboundary aquifers and filed this report. Port.
3: Thanks for joining me, Wandile Kalipa from Channel Africa Radio. And if you introduce yourself.
11: Yes, I'm Karen Wilholt. I'm the principal researcher on the Ramazwa Project um, and from IMI, International Water Management Institute.
12: And I'm Pera Ramwedi. I'm the senior program officer at the SADAC Secretariat in the direct trade of infrastructure and services, my responsibility being in charge of transboundary water management.
3: Okay. So talking about this uh, second regional meeting on tools for sustainable management of palm- transboundary aquifers. What could be said about the management of this aquifer in the
12: region of Southern Africa? Well, I won't be going to specifics, but in general, SADAC has agreed that water is an area of cooperation since adoption of the water sector, the dedicated sector, in 1996 by the SADAC Council of Ministers. Groundwater is part of the hydrological cycle, in other words, including surveys water and other parts of the water. So groundwater cooperation is guided by the Treaty of Sadak, and the Protocol on Sheldon courses which was subsequently amended and revised in 2000, takes cognizance of groundwater as a resource that needs to be incorporated. And this particular meeting, and my colleague Karen will also elaborate, is an attempt by the region to learn from previous projects that have been implemented, in this case on two specific aquifers within the region, the Stamperet shared between South Africa, Botswana and Namibia, the Ramotswa aquifer shared by Botswana and South Africa, basically to learn the tools that can be applied to effectively manage groundwater in the region. But it is also tied together with that a training for the next two days on various aspects of international water law as it relates to groundwater. And therefore, this is what we are here to do, hopefully to improve the awareness, understanding and comprehension of groundwater issues in terms of legal implications within the member states. The meeting is attended by 15 of the SADAC member states, including Experts from universities, from research institutions, from partners that we work with in the water sector. This includes EMWI, it includes other partners like UNESCO, our universities based in the region and with an expertise on water.
3: So what are the major challenges with regards to the management of these aquifers?
11: Well, in the region, groundwater plays a very important role for uh, water security. A huge proportion of the population is dependent on groundwater. It's about 70%, I think. So there's a big need to have more emphasis on the management, the sustainable management of this resource, and in particular also the resources that are shared between the countries. And so this is the focus of this joint endeavor that we're talking about here. We have identified two of these aquifers, that are sort of the maybe key ones in the region to identify how can we go about you know cooperation around the groundwater resources and also the capacity building, setting up joint mechanisms for the sustainable management going into the future. And this will complement the efforts that are already going on in terms of transboundary surface water management which has a longer history and more experience. But groundwater has been sort of lagging behind a little bit, so we are picking up on that and joining forces also to understand how can we integrate the surface water management with the river basin management.
12: How are they important with regards to adaptation to the threat of climate change? Well, groundwater by nature, by being an underground resource, which is not normally affected by the same issues that affect surveys, such as evaporation and things like that. And the nature of its occurrence being a slow-moving resource, once retained, can be utilized for various reasons, is a very good resource for adaptation. In other words, it can be available to the people for what they need to use it, more because it's not affected by adversities of, say, evaporation, as is the case, It's relatively clean. In fact, you don't have to apply a lot of treatment on groundwater as you would on surface water. And therefore, it is a very good resource that can be used to adapt to climate change. In the region, it has been said that there's more of groundwater available, but I think this is also the case globally, that in terms of proportion of availability, groundwater occurs or is more available, or rather is more in abundance than surveys water, including if you look at the whole hydrological cycle. So groundwater is a very important, but underutilized and an understood resource. So it's very important, especially as you look at issues of climate change, that groundwater is well understood, equitably exploited, and managed and protected from pollution. The reason most important is that if groundwater is polluted, it takes a lot to clean. It takes a long time to get it clean so that it can still be used. So we have to protect very effectively groundwater from adverse impacts of pollution if that would happen. But I think my colleague can also add it on that. We've just experienced the El Nino phenomenon. Yes. Now. So now how do we protect our groundwater? No, I think, as you've noted, the El Nino means there's inadequate availability of water. And particularly in the rural areas, the best response that we normally would do is to sink more boreholes, to drill more holes to get people to get water, because the surface water has been depleted, which depends entirely on refill from rainfall. And when there's no rainfall, then it means this is affected. This obviously has to be managed, how much of the groundwater we can grow in a sustainable manner that it doesn't affect the available resource over time but as I said because this resource is underground it needs also to be understood the dynamics that go in in terms of how it behaves how much of it is there now the two aquifers which have been focused on An effort has been made to try and understand the extent of the aquifer, the volume, the content in the aquifer. And therefore it's possible then that you can actually abstract sustainably in a way that it won't affect the integrity of the aquifer.
11: Yes. No, I very much agree, and uh, I think the major point here is that we need to put in the structures and the mechanisms for sustainably managing the groundwater resource. I think that's very much the point, because as we say, it's also a resource that is vulnerable. If it's uh, over-abstracted or if it's polluted, there's uh, issues in the long term. But it's a very valuable resource, so we do have to put a lot more energy, efforts, and resources into its protection and management and the use.
1: That's Carol Vilhoff, who is Principal Researcher at the Water Management Institute in Southern Africa, talking to Wandele Kalipa, your Economic News Now.
13: In new economics news this hour, South Africa's economy is expected to grow at 0.5% this year and 1.5% next year. That's according to an economic outlook by Bartlett's Africa Group. The outlook warns that uh, the growth is too slow to generate jobs. Nigeria, on the other hand, will remain in recession and will need to work on its foreign exchange policy to allow investments to thrive. Jave Gable is Barclays Africa's head of macroeconomic research.
14: For South Africa, we think the economy is only going to grow half a percent this year. We think it's going to grow one to one and a half percent next year. It's too slow to generate any jobs. An economy that's too slow to generate any jobs is an economy in which lots of social pressures come to the fore, where the temptation for unorthodox policies becomes larger rather than softer.
13: South Africa's Finance Minister, Pravin Godan, says responsible and responsive leadership in South Africa and other countries around the world is important to ensure that inclusive societies are built. He says this is a very important theme for next year's World Economic Forum in Davos. In January, he maintains that uh, the team South Africa will present uh, common messages that the country's desirable investment des- destination. Godan addressed the media ahead of the World Economic Forum.
3: So, responsive and responsible leadership, I think, are two fascinating concepts, both for the globe uh, but for ourselves as well, whichever sector we come from. And what is responsible uh, leadership, as they see it? It's about integrity, it's about understanding the environment in a holistic kind of way and making sure that you do care about the state of your country or the state of the world as a leader in business amongst the trade unions and other key constituencies like government so that you become part of the coordinated effort that, that uh, they refer to.
13: Rwanda's government has pushed back the sale of its 20% stake in INM Bank Rwanda for the first quarter of next year leaving the Rwanda boss without a single new listing this year. No reason was given for the delay to the IM sale slated for this year. Falling valuations on the Rwanda Stock Exchange have hampered government efforts to develop the East African nation's nascent capital markets. And Morocco's Casablanca Stock Exchange plans to sell up to 20% of its shares to the public and another 15 to 20% stake to a strategic investor in the next five years. The boss is Africa's second largest by market capitalization. It changed its ownership in June this year from a mutual company for brokers as a first step towards the listing of its shares. The sale of uh, shares to the public and a strategic investor could take place at the same time. The exchange which has a market capitalization of 55 billion US dollars with 75 listed firms is planning to introduce trading of exchange traded funds and real estate investments trusts. Iran and Iraq are resisting pressure from Saudi Arabia to curtail production, making it hard for the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries to reach a global output limiting, though, when it meets on Wednesday. OPEC, which accounts for a third of global oil production, agreed in September to cap output at around 33 million barrels per day. Iran has argued it wants to raise production to regain market share, which has been lost under Western sanctions. Financial indicators now: the dollar is at thirteen eighty nine South African rand. It is weaker against Botswana pula at ten point sixty Botswana pula at 9.80 Zambi and nine point eighty against Zambian kwacha. Looking at the uh, European currencies, the dollar is at zero uh, point eighty against the British pound and zero point nine four against the euro. Commodities: gold one thousand hundred ninety dollars, platinum nine hundred ninety two dollars per fine ounce, and the spot price of Brent crude oil is at forty seven dollars. 85 cents per barrel. That's how it's looking.
1: And it's time for your sports news now.
14: Good evening Spot fans with the latest Channel Africa Spot News at this hour, Amneto and E.T.O. Chemani. A plane carrying 81 people including a top Brazilian football team has crashed on its approach to the city of Medellin in Colombia police say five people survived the crash but the rest of those on board died. The chartered aircraft flying from Brazil to Bolivia was carrying members of the Chapecheonce team. The team was due to play in the final of the Copa Sudamericana against Medellin Team Atletico Nacional. The first leg of the final of the cup, South America's second most important club competition, was scheduled for Wednesday but has now been suspended. The South American Football Confederation, CONMEBOL, said it was suspending all activities is Banyana Banyana interim head coach Desiree Ellis says they want to change their fortunes when they face Nigeria in the semi-final of the 2016 for Africa Women's Cup of Nations tonight at Stade Limbe Omnisport in Limbe, Cameroon at 2000 South African time. The Nigerians have dominated this competition over the years, winning a record nine times. The Cecil sponsored Banyana Banyana have only come close on four occasions where they finished as runners-up in 1995, 2000, 2008, and 2012. Along the way, South Africa has met Nigeria nine times and lost eight times, including twice in the final. Banyana Banyana only defeated the West Africans once and that was back in 2012 in the semifinals in Equatorial Guinea. Far from the image of fast cars and mansions, soccer players around the world face low wages, delayed payments, bullying and intimidation, according to a survey published today. FIFPRO General Secretary Theo van Sigelen says 60% of the 14,000 players interviewed in 54 countries and less than $388 US dollars a month and 4 in 10 had experienced late payment at some stage in the last two years. The survey conducted by the World Players Union, FIFPRO, said just under one third had less than 10 days paid annual leave and the average contract length was just over 22 months. To be honest, it was even worse than I thought it was. So in that case, uh,
5: I think that uh, uh, we ring a bell, and I hope that with, with these figures, uh, everybody wake up. It's a wake-up call for, for clubs. It's a wake-up call for the governing bodies. Uh, not to uh, say how good we are that we have done this. No, it's a wake-up call, and we really see it as a, as a, as a possibility to, um, to change it and, uh, and to urgently change it, uh, in, in, because we cannot uh, uh, any longer accept that. And also it's very good for the f- press and for the fans uh, to show that uh, not every uh, football player is uh, having uh, three cars in three different colors. It is about the reality of our football industry, which
14: is completely different from uh, what uh, most of the fans are thinking. FIFPRO said that the survey produced in conjunction with the University of Manchester covered countries in Europe, North and South America, and Africa. Unions from several key countries, including England and Spain, which boast two of the world's richest leagues, did not return completed surveys. However, this was offset by the number of developing countries, which were also excluded. 41% said they had experienced delays in being paid, although this figure rose to 79% in Malta, 75% in Turkey, 74% 74% in Romania and 96% in Gabon. Van Sigelen said that although players could go to FIFA's dispute resolution chamber after a three-month delay, this was not viable in practice as they had to wait two years for a decision.
12: Uh,
14: then
5: uh, on the confederation level, uh, you also have difference. And then on the national level, you have uh, uh, the pyramid. You can make uh, the, 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 the collective bargaining agreements as strong as you want like uh, uh, in the Netherlands, like in France. Uh, That is the idle situation. But uh, you have to start somewhere and you have to start from above before we are going to to change that. And that will cost time. But uh, I think in, in six months, the FIFA can change in the next Congress, can change their regulations.
14: Moving on to cricket news. Australia women completed a 4-0 series sweep when they beat the Momentum Proteus by 43 rounds in the fifth and final one-day international ODI at Coves Harbour today. The fourth match ended in a tie. After once again winning the toss and electing to bet first, the Southern Stars posted 264 for nine, with the most notable performances coming from Ellis Perry with 56, Nicole Bolton 43. Beth Moon, 42, and Jess Jonathan, 39. South Africa's Moscelin Daniels and Soon Luz took six wickets between them, retaining respective figures of three for 53 and three for 56. Thank you for tuning in to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: Seventeen fifty-seven Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's recap our top stories. The United Nations calls for openness between the United States and Cuba to continue following the death of a long-time leader. South African president survives another attempt to eject him out of office. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumalele Pomele Zondi, producer Luanda Mohamed, technical producer Wiseman Mangaila and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. For comments, send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, it's plus 27796957930 plus 27796. 957 930 tweet us on channel Africa1 we leave you with Africa by Salif Keita